Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we will be discussing polygamy as well as two weeks worth of Come Follow Me, Doctrine and Covenants, sections 133 through 136. And we are members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Another member of the Dialogue Podcast Network that you should check out is the podcast Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward. It's run by Kaylee and Tracy. I'm pretty new to listening to their podcast. I listened to episode 87, the 13th article of faith. I loved this one so much. I feel like they're so relatable and so good at pointing out things that I have missed with my experience in the church. But once they were pointed out, they were really interesting to consider. They break down in this episode, the 13th article of faith. Thank you for sharing that. I will put that on my list. I need more things to listen to while I do my crocheting. Cool. Thumbs up. (laughs) I love that. All right. So we're looking at Doctrine and Covenants. Well, let me just summarize. So 133 is revelation given through Joseph Smith on a bunch of different topics. It talks about the second coming and Zion and the gospel's purpose 134 is a declaration of belief, so it's not a revelation, but it is regarding governments and laws in general, and it was adopted by a vote at a general assembly of the church. 135 documents the martyrdom of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. It says it was written by John Taylor, but there are other records that say that other people could have contributed to it, just so that's known. And then 136 is revelation given to Brigham Young through the Lord about the saints traveling, beginning the trek. So this is about three years after Joseph Smith was martyred. Thank you for sharing that. All right. So before we get into the Doctrine and Covenants part for these two weeks, we kind of want to do a follow-up on our polygamy episode. Serena, <laughs> how have things been going since you posted that episode? What I mean, I shouldn't phrase it like that. What would you like to share? What kind of follow-up do you want to focus on? I feel like what I said was really necessary and was definitely the groundwork that I needed to lay, but that there was so much left that I didn't get to. I would like to say some things that I didn't get to do from my own research as a follow-up to last week's episode and also say that the work is still not done. There is still so much that needs to be said about polygamy that I've only barely touched, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. The first thing is I wanted to share some of the instances of disability that I saw while reading the Polygamous Wives Writing Club. Rachel Simmons, who was married to a guy named Joe, when they were discussing polygamy, he thought it would be easier if he married one of her sisters instead of somebody else, if that makes sense. Hmm on her as a first wife. He worked a bunch of different jobs. He also like acted on stage (laughs) in Salt Lake City. But the problem was that she and Joe did not get along 
in terms of money and he had like a big drinking problem he put in long hours on stage in addition to working and his health began to fail it says the two sisters and wives also suffered together when joe got sick they sat up with him every night and that net had her that's her sister had been a helpmate to rachel so you feel like polygamy in that instance was like an accommodation to a situation where if the man's health failed at that time, that would have like put a single couple in a worse spot. Yeah, I definitely think that the fact that <clears throat> there are multiple people in the household or just in the family makes caregiving easier. Because mm. I think we've talked about this a little bit before about how caregivers will... Nowadays, a lot of them give so much of themselves to their family members sometimes that their identity kind of becomes enmeshed with their disabled family member. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's, that can be dangerous because then when that family member does become independent, then they don't know what to do with themselves. You know what I mean? Well, independent in whatever incremental or non-incremental way or if they use a caregiver their whole life, that's a thing too. Yes. But I get your point. Like, yeah, there's a lot of problems with it. I mean, it affects that person's life in a huge way, but also it affects how they perceive and talk about disability. Like either yes, they wear exactly. it as like a burden or they wear it as a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. And both of them can be problematic for the disability community. Yes. And obviously this did not use the word disability in this sense. It just said that he was sick because he had a drinking problem. And some people might argue that he brought the sickness upon himself. But I think that's a stretch because why was he drinking so much? You know, like what mental health issues did he have? I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying that there's other factors, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that like what you're saying, like, the fact that there were that Rachel and Net were both there for each other and there for him, I think, made it easier for all of them to care about each other at the time. So, yeah, yeah. And if you think about how, like you said, disability wasn't mentioned, but if he's sick enough that he was bedridden, mm-hmm. what are people's options at that time? Like that could have made the family lose their home. Yeah, bedridden people could have been moved to an institution. Yeah, that is really really interesting that he had two caregivers and that both wives could also support each other as they were caregivers to him yes and eventually rachel became a successful midwife and lived to age 90 she died in 1926 wow i want to read this thing it says that when rachel wrote her autobiography as an old woman she had been a widow for many years She wanted her readers to know that she and Joe had loved each other and that he was a special person, but he had disappointed her too. He approached polygamy in what she thought was a rather selfish way and succumbed to his alcohol addiction. But in polygamy, he finally chose Rachel's sister, Nett, for a second wife, a relationship that caused Rachel no problems. Hmm. Which is really interesting because she had her own feelings about it and they were nuanced in and of themselves, you know, like you can't generalize her experience either. Okay, another instance that I wanted to bring up, Martha Haywood. Do you remember me mentioning her in the bonus episode? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was one of my favorites because she was like, I want to go on a mission. Anyway, her husband, um, Joseph Haywood, in her journal, she said, Mr. Haywood had peculiarities. And although he was a good man, he was not intellectual. (laughs) Which I was like, this sounds like code for like neurodivergent or possibly even intellectually disabled, you know, which I'm like, I see you, you neurodivergent person. Like, I just thought that was fun. Like, because he also wanted to go on a mission. And anyway. Wow. It's kind of interesting that we as a peculiar people that we love calling ourselves that that Mm -hmm. one of us would call someone else a peculiar person. You know what I mean? Like, like within ourselves, like, yeah, yeah, we're peculiar, but he's like really peculiar. Really peculiar. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? We can wear that as a badge of honor too. (laughs) We're the most peculiar of the most peculiar. (laughs) Hashtag t-shirt idea. (laughs) I would love that. Yeah. One thing that... Uh, I think needs to be mentioned, and I say this cautiously, but I think it needs to be mentioned, um, is that Brigham Young himself, I don't feel like he was neurotypical. Maybe some people will want to argue with me, and maybe they will have evidence for this, and some people will say that you shouldn't like speculate on real live people about whether or not they were neurodivergent, but he's dead, so I don't care. (laughs) And also, that's not a shameful thing. (laughs) Exactly. Well, a lot of people in, like, the autistic community say, like, don't speculate whether someone, like, a celebrity is autistic because, like, that's their own journey. And if they are, it's their own journey to, like, point it out. Kind of like coming out as queer, you know, like, you don't want to uh, out somebody before they themselves have prepared for that you know Hmm, okay anyway I don't think that he was neurotypical because even in this book the polygamous wives writing club she quotes biographer John G Turner who wrote about Brigham Young and said that his sermons were filled with fire and dreams and theological speculation and then another biographer Ronald W Walker said that Young was creative and innovative and unshackled by tradition which he hated and like the i hate tradition thing is such a neurodivergent thing you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like my nd radar is like pinging you know (laughs) and it said that young hoped that mormonism would quote transform society and seemed unafraid to announce new ideas and i say this because i want to show that neurodivergent people autistic people are not a monolith and just because someone is neurodivergent does not mean that they didn't cause harm does that make sense Mm -hmm. brigham young arguably caused a lot of harm Um, he was in a leadership position during pioneers entering utah and taking land away from native americans violently and forcefully he himself owned native american slaves I don't like calling people as a whole bad, but I am very, very tempted to say he was a bad man. (laughs) And he was also neurodivergent. Like me saying that someone is neurodivergent does not mean that I'm saying that they're necessarily a good person or that I necessarily like them. Mm -hmm. It's me saying like, 
this is their neurotype and this is why I understand the way that they are, that doesn't mean I agree with them. And I think that's something that's hard for people to conceptualize just because we're so used to like treating people in a binary way, you know, because like as soon as we start talking about like neurodivergent representation, then we start wanting to share examples of this representation, but we also have to consider like, is this a good example? Are we putting them on a pedestal just because they're neurodivergent? Mm. And I don't want to do that with Brigham Young. And, and he himself, Brigham Young, said some pretty ableist things as well. Brigham Young said, I want hard times so that every person that does not wish to stay for the sake of his religion will leave. Referring to the physical challenges of the mountainous West and the strict commandments God required, Young said, this is a good place to make saints. Hmm. Which is like super ableist. Just because people are having a hard time living, then that means that they're becoming saints. Like, and that they have to subject themselves to living in poverty and dirt and war and stuff just because they want sainthood like that's problematic in my opinion especially with the amount of illnesses that people encountered and disabilities yeah. because they were subjecting themselves to live in this kind of poverty mm-hmm. okay another interesting thing which gives more nuance to our discussion of polygamy During the Mormon Reformation of 1856 and 1857, polygamous marriages increased. There was a famine in Utah, and in order to, like, help alleviate that, church leaders asked people to, like, recommit themselves, asked them to even rebaptize themselves in some instances, and add plural wives to their marriages as an accommodation for this famine, if that makes sense. And they, like, gave fiery speeches and, like, visited each home with, like, lots of questions about their spiritual state, which seemed pretty intrusive. And then afterwards, they would, like, ask them to to seal their rededication with rebaptism. Anyway, studies show that during this Reformation period, polygamous marriages were contracted at a rate 65% higher than in any other two-year period in Utah history which is really mm. interesting. Like, I don't think it's bad to say that it was an accommodation in some instances. I feel like people don't like hearing it. Like, you even said, like, you're uncomfortable with the idea of a human being an accommodation. Yeah, that's in regards to, for our listeners, the Sarah and Hagar post that we made on Instagram. I'm still thinking a lot about that post and one thing that I immediately thought of is I don't like the concept of someone like a human being used as an accommodation because I feel like if we're gonna look at each person as a holy human in and of themselves I don't know like interdependence is like crucial to community and to disability so I think that that is important but when it's specifically about like Growing your family and having a human to be an accommodation to that, to help you grow your family, like that just makes one person that can't do that lesser specifically because of something they can't control. I don't know. I feel like I could talk in circles about this and I still don't really know how to think about this. So yeah, I probably should just not talk about it yet until I have a better understanding. I mean, I think those are really good points. I would say, like, there are instances of people who willingly 
accommodate, for instance, same-sex couples or gay couples who want children and want biological children, and there are women who choose to be surrogate mothers, you know, and that is an accommodation. Yeah, this is a delicate topic, and I don't want to go into it that much, but I guess my point is that I don't see it so much as, like, a human themselves becoming an accommodation as, like, a relationship structure um, that is non-traditional can be accommodating for people in different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. Likely, the people who were in this famine who were probably suffering the most were the women who were not connected to a man to provide for them because at the time it was very much more men work and it's difficult to get work if you're a woman, right? And studies even showed that like the women who entered polygamous marriages more often were ones who didn't have like a brother or a father or a son to help offset some of the bills, right? Anyway, I don't even know if I would use the word beautiful, but I I feel like it makes sense that some women during the famine that entered into plural marriage and it helped accommodate their needs, you know, from being in this famine and literally starving. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm still uncomfortable with the idea of polygamy being used like when it has to do with fertility and it comes off like it's replacing one of the wives with a wife who can provide children. I don't like that because infertility, it's a thing that a a couple, whatever the couple looks like, or a family goes through together. It's not one person who should be viewed as at fault or one person who has this trial. But I love an interdependent view of polygamy where people can bring their different talents and gifts and selves to a relationship and benefit a family. I get that those are really close, but I just am sensitive to the concepts of like infertility and polygamy. This though... I guess it paints a picture of another reason why polygamy was helpful. It doesn't necessarily feed into the concept of like it being like there for romance and for love. Yeah. But it is, I mean, in a way it does because it's a community helping each other, I guess. Yes. Yeah. But it's just different than the examples that you listed before. Yeah. I think this whole practical reasoning for polygamy is the one that people have the most trouble with. Because we're so used to love, etc., for marriage, you know. But I mean, as someone who's largely aromantic and wants my needs met, I would like to have my needs met regardless of whether or not I fall in love with someone. But anyway, that's just me, and I'm cynical. Anyway, <laughs> the other two little things that I wanted to share was Eunice was a first wife and Eunice had some sort of chronic stomach trouble she had a stomach trouble that made her really sick in 1857 and 1858 that kept her from writing in her diary at the time she said I was taken very sick with a headache and pain in my stomach I was not able to work for six weeks 
A few months later, she wrote that she ate, quote, a piece of turnip, end quote, and it gave her the cramp in her stomach, and she was like to die for near three weeks. During this oh time, my gosh. yeah, during this time, her sister, like her actual sister, not like a, another wife, came and took care of her family, and Eunice wrote, watched with me half of nearly every night. But, like, she went on, she might have opened the very first store in Provo, Utah. Hmm. Her diary primarily recorded sales, purchases, and bargains she made with Provo and Payson men between 1855 and 1858. While her husband was away on missions, wheat flour was scarce, and she was constantly hustling trades to get flour. I liked the fact that it said both that she was sick also that she was like a businesswoman, that she was a, yeah. a possibly disabled woman, or at least disabled on and off. And she still like took charge and like was entrepreneurial and provided for her family when her husband was away. And she was a polygamist as well? Yeah. So she was a first wife. So her husband married... Oh, maybe you said that. Sorry. Oh, no worries. Yeah. Her husband married Caroline, who was 11 years older than, than him. He also married Mariah, who was four years older. And then he also married a 17-year-old Mary Weir, who had her second baby just before Eunice died. And then the book notes that there weren't rules against marrying teenage girls. And in fact, men may have been convinced that young women and their parents preferred men with solid reputations in the church and community. Sometimes the parents even encouraged it. Anyway, it's interesting because she also says that in cases when she witnessed when polygamy failed, she, meaning Eunice, almost invariably concluded that the failure was in the men, <laughs> sometimes because they were as much governed by passion as by principle, but her husband was an exception because she always admired him and he was a husband amongst a thousand and that she had like better luck with. And it's also interesting that her husband married two women older than him. Point is though, was that she was possibly disabled and she owned a store and was really badass. So that was my point about Eunice. <laughs> and then lastly, so there is a character in here. I say character cause she almost reads like a made up character, Angelina. She was the first wife as well, and she was married to a Mr. Farley, and honestly, reading her entries from her diary, I'm just like, this woman is so borderline. Oh my gosh. She shows so many borderline personality disorder traits, and I laugh because it reminds me of my own diary entries. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Wow. I almost shouldn't laugh because I know that what she was going through was very, very painful for her at the time. She said that Angelina would have admitted that when Mr. Farley seemed to care more for Lydia, his second wife, I believe, she couldn't hold her tongue. Angelina sometimes even felt that an evil spirit was working on her. Oh, dear. And then afterwards, Mr. Farley had some talk with her and that he was much hurt with the spirit she had had lately. Angelina knew she was weak and sometimes spoke too quickly. <laughs> she wished that she could ignore the irritations that led her tongue astray or that she could, like a horse, put a bit upon herself, which I have literally wished this, you know, like... <gasps> This is like something... Oh, Serena. Well, I mean, 
as someone who is autistic and borderline, I feel like I misstep all the time when I like speak out about things or people will tell me that I overreact. And sometimes I've like wished that I could just control myself. Anyway, but it's just interesting, not just like the fact that she was experiencing these things, but that her moods seem to change so quickly, which is very indicative of BPD, of borderline personality disorder. Like the very next day, she talked about how her husband was gardening while she and Lydia, the other wife, were washing clothes and that a good feeling was restored in the family. But then like a couple weeks later, she accidentally walked in on him and Lydia lovemaking and she was very upset about it. Mm. And it said that her feelings were woefully wrought up which made me act and speak very unbecoming. He, meaning her husband, is hurt again. And then she experienced a lot of shame after that. And when I consider how I must have appeared and how odious my conduct must have looked, he not knowing the cause, I feel much ashamed. And then a few days later, she says, Mr. Farley and I getting more pleasant again. Like she, everything is, is normal again, you know? So like this back and forth thing is very borderline. The day that Lydia's third baby was born in January 1860, Angelina and Lydia must have had a run-in because Angelina wrote, Well, am I all in the blame and no one else is wrong? The devil is up with us again and Mr. Farley has gone to his room twice without prayer, completely overboard again and all because I am weak enough to notice and care for his one-sided treatment. So Lydia had a baby. A few days later, Angelina feels like, her husband is is treating Lydia with more attention and care than he is treating her. And she one time she went to a dance over at, at someone named Isaac's house with her father. And, and it says, as though she meant to gain something with this night out, she finished her diary entry with ha ha exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> She's just really funny. Okay, this last thing is she would sometimes admit to having demons in her head and even the belief that the devil was getting power over her, as Arthur Miller wrote of the early Salem Puritans, would be disturbing. In 1874, still troubled, Angelina wrote, I fear I shall break down in mind as well as body. It is terrible. Unaccountable fear and terror creep over me. Strange things and vague fancies flit through my mind. My head aches. Hmm. So, yeah, her diary was very loud and involved and I feel for her because I see myself in her and I think she's clearly at least had some mental illness um, and some disorganized attachment that was exacerbated by the insecurity of polygamy like I talked about in the bonus episode. I don't want to say anything about her husband and hers relationship just that I thought it was interesting that there was someone who possibly could have had borderline personality disorder who lived back then. The whole demons in your heads thing, like that's something that could be borderline. The thoughts flitting about her brain, they could be intrusive thoughts. They could be some form of psychosis. They could have been some sort of dissociation. Like there are a lot of things that it could be. And anyway, so in the Polygamous Wives Writing Club, the writer also mentions Besides helping create a distinct culture, polygamy allowed a literal shaping of Mormon offspring, genetic control, even if unintentional, which now that I've done more research, I would argue is not unintentional, that it was actually intentional. 
She cites Louis J. Kern, who suggests that because church approval was required before entering celestial marriage, selective breeding was largely in the hands of Mormon hierarchy. Mm. Harline says polygamy inadvertently became a eugenic device that was meant to weed out the unregenerate and gave birth to elite Mormon children, a healthy, virile, and robust population, which is really interesting. And then I found a thesis, actually, by Blair Hodges. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Blair Hodges submitted this thesis in 2013 to Georgetown University for their Master of Arts in Liberal Studies. And this thesis is called Intellectual Disability in Mormon Thought and History, 1830 to 1900. And it's like, really long and fascinating oh i've read some of that oh my gosh (laughs) yes yes yeah it's like 134 pages long and i love it it's just interesting how disability is used in conjunction with polygamy here which shows that it's even more nuanced than than i even originally thought blair says that critics of mormonism employ disability as a supposed product of mormon polygamy to justify discrimination against mormons so he's saying that Critics of the church would be like, oh, well, polygamy results in disability. Therefore, we will discriminate against Mormons. Does that make sense? Which Mm -hmm. is so wild and ableist. I can't even... Makes me mad. While defenders of Mormonism argued the inverse, that polygamy would perfect the human race. (laughs) which is like super eugenic and scary. Wow. And then later on in chapter six of this thesis, I love that this thesis has chapters. It makes me so happy. But anyway, (laughs) George Q. Cannon was an asshole. Uh, By the way, he's in my line. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks, Serena. (laughs) Well, that's okay. That's okay. Continue. Do you want tell to me tell more. Us just a little bit about who he was, really quick, before I say these things. I mean, it's true that there's uh, there's some uh, <laughs> not so great things in his history. I know that he was a polygamist. I actually am from the line of his second wife, but my great grandma was adopted by the daughter of his second wife. So I'm. I guess I'm not blood related to him, but he is in my family line through adoption. He was born in England, and I know that he translated the Book of Mormon into Hawaiian, and that he was in a lot of church leadership positions in the early church days. Yeah. He was an early member of the Quorum of the Twelve and Mm -hmm. served in the first presidency under four successive presidents of the church, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, and Lorenzo Snow. He was the first missionary on the island of Maui, which is problematic in other ways. Anyway, I wrote that he was an asshole because... (laughs) And he published a, like, eugenic, like, piece of writing about polygamy. Blair Hodges says that George Q. Cannon made the case for Mormon polygamy by harnessing popular thought on health and procreation. In the process, he further marginalized people with intellectual disabilities in Mormon theology. 
Perhaps the only mm. unique wow. contribution Mormons made to these proto-eugenic arguments was in the way they used them to criticize monogamy. And Blair says that Cannon said society should frame laws forbidding the disabled from marrying and requiring the fit or able-bodied to marry. This would certainly offend novelists, libertines, and fools, but the production of a superior race of men and consequently a purer state of society should be the government's goal, which is awful. Oh my gosh, Serena, I should probably keep my disability when I get to heaven just so I can meet him and be like, hey, I'm your great great granddaughter. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Oh, interesting that I'm here with a disability. Hmm. In your face. (laughs) Your eugenics failed. Ha. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm going to be petty in heaven. Oh, crap. <laughs> please, please. I, I wouldn't die. have... Heaven wouldn't be heaven without petty Katie. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I have a quote directly from this thing that George Q. Cannon wrote. And it's like, pretty eugenics, ableist. Yeah, but I just mm, want okay. people to know that beforehand as a little bit of a trigger warning. And also, I just want to share it to show the kind of rhetoric that was surrounding polygamy and disability at this time quote this is precisely what the saints in the valleys of the mountains are endeavoring to accomplish joseph smith had penetration enough to know that so long as the bodies of men are weak degenerate and tainted with impurities inherited from their fathers for a thousand generations it is impossible to accomplish with them any great moral improvement or indoctrinate them with many divine truths therefore being divinely aided He, meaning Joseph Smith, introduced a system which commenced precisely where the Christian dispensation began. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Luke 1.21 He taught that none but healthy men should marry, that a man should know his wife for the purpose of procreation, and for that only that he should keep himself apart from her during the carrying and nursing periods, that it is lawful and right, God commanding, for a man to have more than one wife, that adultery should be punishable with death, that whoredom should not be tolerated under any consideration, and that by observing these rules and the general laws of health, their posterity would become healthy and vigorous. And the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, As the age of a tree, so shall the age of my people be, will be fulfilled. This theory is reduced to practice in Utah Territory, and it is remarked by immigrants passing through Salt Lake City that the proportion of children is unusually great, and they are uncommonly robust and healthy. Who cannot see that the mental vigor of those children will be in proportion to their physical perfection, and that a generation is rising in the American interior who will make their mark upon the history of their times? This is what the Gentiles with the priests at their head call Mormon abomination and other hard names, but the question arises, which is the better, the Mormon or the Christian practice in relation to this matter? End quote. Wow. Even as a person that was raised in a patriarchal system that's treated as like normal and good, that makes me like wince so hard. You know what I mean? Like there's even things outside of what I'm used to being used to this system that's like, wow. Yeah. But I know that there's even more than what I'm recoiling at. Wow. 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 Yeah. I don't. How do I say this? 
Polygamy as a system of relationships does not even mean marriage of one man and multiple women. That's polygyny, P-O-L-Y-G-Y-N-Y. And polygamy literally just means marriage to more than one person. So as a system itself, polygamy is neutral. And I want to emphasize that. And like I said in the last episode, polygamy in practice among ordinary members of the church back then happened for a variety of consensual reasons, right? However, from a top-down perspective, this is the rhetoric that was happening. And that Mm. is problematic, racially problematic, disability problematic, sex positive problematic, equality in marriages problematic, especially in regards to like fathers being involved with their children, you know. And I think it's interesting that he says that whoredom and adultery should not be tolerated, but that polygamy is encouraged, you know, because it just goes to show that it's not really the sexual acts that are the problem, especially with all this talk about children. It's about controlling the population and controlling who's able to have children. If you commit adultery or if you're a prostitute, then you are having children outside of the sanctioned structures that people are allowing you to have children. And so all of this actually comes down to children and eugenics and um, from the perspective of these leaders of the church. And I think that's horrific, but also like ties so many things together that it's grotesquely fascinating and it makes a lot of things make sense, but not in a good way. Anyway, that was probably really hard to hear for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And I want to give space for that. Yeah, just another thing to consider in regards to polygamy and ableism. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Are you set to move on to a little bit of uh, Yes, definitely, definitely. Okay. Like I said in the summary, the sections that we're looking at, it talks about a lot of different things. I mostly want to focus on the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram. Before we talk about that super quick, in section 134, I'm curious to see how other people interpret this section. This is the one that talks about beliefs regarding governments and laws. In this section, it talks about slavery, servants, servitude, and it's talking about how people need to defer to slaves' masters and not interfere. And it seems really strongly in opposition to how we kind of view the church as being pro-freedom and liberty for enslaved people and being anti-racist in the early church days, but then going back on it, like this is very forward. It shouldn't have been canonized. I don't understand how it's still canonized. And I'm curious to see what other people say when they share their thoughts about it. That's all I'll say on that because I don't have a lot of knowledge about this section. We'll now kind of look at section 135, which is the announcement of the martyrdom of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. So Joseph, he had 
other things that he was trying to do. So he like left and came back. And when he finally left for Carthage, Emma and him knew that they were in danger. The saints were in danger. Joseph was in danger. And Emma thought that this was maybe the last time she was going to see Joseph. Emma wanted to get a blessing from him before he left. And he didn't have time to give it to her in that moment. But he told her to write down on a piece of paper the blessing that she wanted, whatever she desired. And he said he would sign it when he came back. And it says, in this blessing she penned, Emma asked for wisdom from Heavenly Father and the gift of discernment. Quote, I desire the Spirit of God to know and understand myself. She wrote, I desire a fruitful, active mind that I might be able to comprehend the designs of God. She asked for wisdom to raise her children, including the baby she expected in November, who, by the way, I learned on the Funeral Potatoes for Singles Ward podcast that that baby was disabled. That baby was put in an institution later in his life. Back to the blessing, she expressed hope in her eternal marriage covenant, quote, I desire with all my heart to honor and respect my husband, she wrote, ever to live in his confidence and by acting in unison with him, retain the place which God has given me by his side. Finally, Emma prayed for humility and hoped to rejoice in the blessing God prepared for the obedient, quote, I desire that whatever may be my lot through life, she wrote, I may be enabled to acknowledge the hand of God in all things. This is a story I'd never heard before, and I really wanted to share it just to show, like, once again, Joseph's perspective of the priesthood and the power of the priesthood was really different than Mm. how we perceive it today. In a way, Emma gave herself a blessing, and Joseph was just going to sign a piece of paper and say, yep. I felt like that was a really special experience between those two that he wasn't able to voice the blessing at that time but she was able to voice it for herself Mm -hmm. and he had no problem with that and maybe i'm reading into this too much but i i believe it was the last time they saw each other face to face when joseph was alive and to me it's like he's showing her that she can take personal authority over herself, that she has that connection with God. Yeah, I feel like he had a lot of pretty progressive for the time, or at least even progressive compared to now, like ideas about women in the priesthood, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Joseph was in Carthage for a couple days. The day of the martyrdom, we learn what happened from the survivors in the room, it was Willard Richards and John Taylor who were there. I kind of wanted to share the reactions that were had when the news came to Nauvoo about the president of the church, Joseph, and the patriarch of the church, Hiram, Mm -hmm. when they passed away. It was a really huge moment of grief for the community. And it went on and on and on for a long time. People did not know how to work through these deaths because they felt like the Lord would protect Joseph everywhere he went. There's records of letters that were written, journal entries, and poetry that was written. And some of the poetry was turned into song that we have today in hymns, like Praise to the Man. So this is from Villet Kimball. 
V-I-L-A-T-E. Violet. I think it's pronounced Violet. Oh, Violet. Uh I shall not attempt to describe the scene that we have passed through. She wrote to her husband Heber, who was on a mission at the time, God forbid that I should ever witness another like unto it. Every heart is filled with sorrow and the very streets of Nauvoo seem to mourn. Almira McCovey, who's a cousin to the Smith brothers, wrote about seeing the bodies of Joseph and Hiram return to Nauvoo, quote, you can judge what were our feelings better than I can write them, she wrote, but this much I can say that a dry eye I did not behold that day among that large assembly of people. It was enough to rend the heart of a stone to behold two prophets of the Lord laid prostrate. Sarah Kimball, who played a key role in founding the Relief Society, wrote, The scene of the reception of those corpses in Nauvoo can be better imagined than described, for Penn was never made competent to do it justice. And then Lucy Mack Smith, who is mother to both Joseph and Hiram, Sarah Kimball, who I just quoted, remembered holding Lucy Mack Smith's trembling hand and hearing her question between sobs, how could they kill my poor boys? Oh, how could they kill them when they were so precious? So this is quoting church history, revelations in context. I wanted to quote that because I found a different quote by Lucy Mack Smith that was like her kind of rejoicing and saying like, God's going to take care of us. And she was like feeling peace through it. And I just wanted to show like these people were mourning, rightfully so. They were shocked at what happened. There's some writings of people that compared Joseph to saints that have been martyred in the past, including ranking Joseph with the martyrs of Jesus Christ and comparing his death to Christ sacrificing himself. Zena Huntington Jacobs, who had been sealed to Joseph Smith as a plural wife, recorded her shock upon seeing the lifeless, speechless bodies of these two martyrs, noting that little did my heart ever think that mine eyes should witness this awful scene. In her journal, Jacobs counted the cost of the martyrdom for the men's families, the community, and humanity, as well as for the church, describing Joseph and Hiram not only as, quote, the prophet and patriarch of the church of the Latter-day Saints, but also as, quote, kind husbands, affectionate fathers, venerable statesmen, and friends of mankind. Zena loved Joseph and was devastated that he passed away in this way. I mean, passed away, period, but also just the violence of his death was devastating to her. For Jacobs, the murders of Joseph and Hiram were evident of the wickedness of the world. In her journal, she prayed that God would acknowledge the innocent blood that had been shed. On July 4th, about a week after the martyrdom, Jacobs noted that it was Independence Day for the United States, and she contrasted the promise of American freedom and justice with the brutal murder of the two brothers. Quote, the once noble banner of liberty is fallen, she wrote. The boasted land of freedom is now stained with the innocent blood. And then it talks about how William Clayton, who was one of Joseph Smith's clerks, also wrote in his journal... Condemning the governor of Illinois, Thomas Ford, he had pledged his faith and the faith of the state that they should be protected from harm. And yet the militia that was supposed to protect Joseph and Hiram had cooperated with the mob. And then 
Revelations in Context says, Like Zena Jacobs, Clayton saw a broad contrast between American ideals of religious liberty and the reality the saints were experiencing. Quote, Liberty is fled. There was no public celebration in Nauvoo on July 4th. With his faith in the nations shattered, Clayton turned to God. We look to thee for justice, he wrote. Wow. I wanted to include that perspective as well, because I feel like when Black Lives Matter, Utah sent out a statement around Independence Day, the 4th of July, and said, anyone who waves the United States flag is racist. It was like really brief and really forward, something like that. And so much condemnation came to them for that statement. And I just felt for them so much. I'm like, hello, of course, it's understandable. They feel this way. And this is Mm -hmm. the similar feeling here. When Joseph died, people just had no faith in the concept of liberty that our nation boasts about because of what happened, because they died in innocent blood. I just hope even if you disagree with that kind of statement, Don't let your patriotism come before your ability to see humanity in people, your desire for justice for people who die innocently. (laughs) It's one of the most frustrating idols in my mind that people have, that people would put liberty and justice before actual human beings who are suffering and dying. And we need to give space for people to mourn these things, even if they come after something that you treasure so much, like the concepts of liberty and justice in our land of the free, you know? Like, yeah. if 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 they come in conflict with that, you need to give them space to mourn because it they are having a different experience than you, a completely different experience. Yeah. So I wanted to end this episode, this concept of, like, how the entire community was grieving and they didn't know how to move forward... I wanted to just share a couple resources for people who are grieving at this time for whatever reason. Counseling.org actually says that grief is a natural reaction to loss or change. Grief is most commonly discussed in relation to death of a loved one. However, grief can be experienced following any major change. And notice that that's neutral. It's not positive change, negative change. Mm. It's any change. You can experience grief. If you experience grief For whatever reason, first of all, don't invalidate yourself. Don't feel like, why do I feel so sad? I shouldn't feel so much grief about this. Like, let yourself experience grief with whatever changes happening in your life because Mm -hmm. it is totally valid. There's actually a really great resource through the University of Utah College of Nursing. They have some services that they offer for people experiencing grief for a lot of different reasons. They actually have different sections of their site, whether it has to do with spouses, siblings, parents, loss of baby, loss of child, overdose, suicide, homicide. They say for most people who have lost a close family member or friend, grief brings intense suffering. Many people experience that suffering as sadness and sorrow in every area of life. There are physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual aspects to grieving. Most people become aware that nothing will ever be the same as it was before the death of their loved one, and grief is highly individualized. In coping with grief, there's some tools you can use to process it. What you need to know and remind yourself consistently is you won't feel like this forever. Grief changes and morphs, and it doesn't completely go away, but it doesn't feel as heavy and as all-consuming throughout time for most people who experience grief. 
You need to be gentle with yourself. You need to validate your emotions and know that they're normal. Grief can beget meaning and understand that you're not alone if you're grieving something at this time in your life. There's also a article that was recently posted by ldsliving.com. It's called Overcoming Grief Illiteracy to Comfort Others, Seven Suggestions from a Latter-day Saint Therapist. In here it says you need to not ignore loss when people are grieving. Don't tell people you know how they feel. Don't start a sentence with, well, at least, like at least you have this or that. Don't take things personally. Don't make it about you. Avoid trite phrases. And don't offer unwanted advice or tell a grieving person what they need. And under all these suggestions on how to not act, it also has follow-up underneath of instead do this. If you are a person that is grieving at this time, I wanted to list a couple resources that are available for you if needed. SAMHSA, which is Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, they have a national helpline that's free and confidential. It's available 24 7, 365, and it's a treatment referral and information service in English and Spanish for individuals and families facing mental and or substance use disorders. Their phone number is 1 800 662 HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is also a great resource. They provide 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress. Their phone number is 1-800-273-8255. And when you call this number, you can expect to first hear an automated message, which will give you options while your call is being routed to a local Lifeline Network crisis center. Uh, Music will play, and then you'll be connected to a skilled, trained crisis worker. And this person will listen to you, try to understand how your problem is affecting you, provide support, and get you the help you need. Again, this is free and confidential, and the phone number is 1-800-273-8255. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, they have a website as well. It's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. On their website, they have more specific resources for disaster survivors, attempt survivors, Native American and Alaskan natives, veterans, deaf, hard of hearing, or people with hearing loss, youth, loss survivors, LGBTQ people, All these resources are on their home page of their website. That's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. And then also there's a website uh, you can go to griefshare.org. They are a Christian-centered grief support network, and they have local meetings around the world and online meetings. This organization It's a 13-week long weekly meeting with sessions with a specific group. Each week there's like a video seminar and then there's a support group where there's group members where you can discuss what's going on in your life and what you're learning. And then they have personal study and reflection time. And it's specifically for people who are grieving the death of a family member or friend. 
And they actually have diverse leadership and experts. So this looks like a good resource. I haven't done it before myself, but it's worth looking into if you are interested in learning more about it. And then, of course, if you need something more specific that I didn't list, if you just Google grief resources, there's a ton of things that pop up and they are really specific into like if you're grieving over the death of a child or a loved one who's committed suicide or even just like change in employment or loss of a friendship, like whatever level it is, there's a lot of resources online and a lot of people that are willing to help. So please talk to someone you trust and don't be hard on yourself for having these normal, real experiences. Follow us on Instagram, holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N, and email us at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to be involved. We'd also like to thank Mativ for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org.